I'm Gerald Neer, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers to get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is peace activist Medea Benjamin. Ms. Benjamin has dedicated her life as an advocate to social justice, perhaps best known as the co-founder of Global Exchange and Code Pink. She's been on the front lines of protest movements throughout the world. And most recently, Ms. Benjamin has published a book, Drone Warfare, Killing by Remote Control. Medea, thanks for coming into WFIU. Nice to be here with you, Daryl. As I tried to craft the introduction, uh, I, I was very aware of the word choices and, and somehow sometimes the danger that goes behind that, that framing. And, and I was curious, if given the opportunity, how would you describe that, that opus of, of work that you've, you've dedicated yourself to the past 30 years? Well, it's interesting. In hearing you frame it, it sounds so negative. You know, the protest, the protest against drones, against this, against war. And in reality, it's all about the positive. It's all about wanting to live in a society where we appreciate each other and we don't kill each other and we help each other out in need. And it's kind of using the your better instincts. And uh, unfortunately, I think it comes across too much as anti, 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 because so many things in our society are moving us in the opposite direction. But really, as a I mean, I suppose peace activist is is a correct term, but who knows what kind of triggers that sends off to people when they hear that term. It's supposed to be a positive term. You're for peace and everybody. I mean, George Bush said he was for peace. Barack Obama said he's for peace. And activists, I suppose, is a good thing to be active. But somehow you put those two things together. And I would venture a guess that in more conservative parts of this country, that would be a a buzzword to say, ooh, don't listen to that person. At what point did you find or discover that this this was your path, that, that you realized that um, you were going to really dedicate yourself to, to something bigger? It was in high school when the Vietnam War was raging, and my older sister had her boyfriend and her friends being drafted and sent off to war, and I watched these really lovely boys become monsters. And one of them sending my sister a present, which was an ear of a Viet Cong to put around her neck as a necklace. And that really scarred me for life. I started an anti-war group in my high school. I learned a lot of the uh, the anti-war songs, and I started working on a campaign for a congressperson who was running against the Vietnam War. And I continued on that path. It wasn't always about war, but it turned to be about war, economic justice issues, social justice issues. So, could you talk about the community time. you were raised in and and the reception that that you received when you started to to form these groups within your high school? It's funny because I hadn't been back to my high school for a long time, and just a couple of weeks ago, I was out there for a funeral, actually, and, and went by my old high school and where I grew up and started really thinking about those days because when I was growing up, and that was, uh, I was born in 1952, so uh, in the 60s, my community was undergoing a radical change. And it was not only around the war, it was around integration. It was a white community. And there were 
black families that started moving into the community. And in my school, there were so many fights in the halls between the uh, the black and the white kids that we had to have police in riot gear in the halls. And I remember there were stabbings in the bathroom. I mean, it was in those days, you know, it wasn't so much gun violence, but imagine stabbing, kids stabbing each other. And so between the Vietnam War and these race issues, I realized that something was terribly, terribly wrong in the way we deal with the other or how we think about the other. And I came from a Jewish family and... I must say my family was not particularly progressive. In fact, I was very disturbed by things within my own family, this idea that you were somehow as Jews the chosen people. I thought, what? what is that about? You know, who is chosen? Who is not chosen? And so I think just early on I started rejecting the whole framework that I was brought up in that religion somehow made you better than somebody else or that your skin color made you better than someone else or that there would somehow be a reason you would want to go thousands of miles away and kill people that you didn't know. Uh, it all seemed very wrong to me. And on the positive side, growing up in the 60s, there were lots of alternatives to get involved in, and that's what I did. Well, I, ha- I have to ask because the, if you mentioned the rejection – you're, you were born Susan Benjamin, mm-hmm. and you made the choice to change your name to Medea. Is, is there any symbolism, meaning behind that choice? I went off to college when I was 18, and I never liked my name. I was I was not Susan. I was Susie because I was little. So, you know, Susan was a very common name, and there were three Susans in my class, and so I would be the, the little Susie. So I never really liked that. And then when I went off to college, I started reading the Greek plays, and I loved them. And every month, I would make my friends call me a different name. I'd try out different ones. And in the case of Medea, you know, I, I, I don't know that it was that thought out. I had read two different versions of the play Medea, one saying that she killed her kids and the other saying, no, she was just a very strong woman with magical powers. And she was blamed for that. But it really was I liked the name. I thought it sounded very pretty. And so I just decided that when somebody turned 18 in my world at that time, you should pick your own name and you should pick your path. And so I decided to do that. But I must say my my parents and my family never to this day, I mean, my parents are dead at this point, but even other family members uh, never called me Medea. They always called me Susie. When you heard Susie and that that. Uh, refusal to to use your chosen name what was your what was your reaction to it i thought it was fine because it really divided my life into the early space when i was under someone else's care and turning 18 when i was my own person at first i minded it but then i thought it was actually a good thing and i liked having those two pieces of my life well in in looking at that that college period of your life and what were some of the, the shaping factors there that helped define this direction that, that, that you're on? Well, it didn't last too long, I must say, because I dropped out after the first semester saying, oh, this doesn't make sense. Here there's a great, big, amazing world out there, and I'm stuck in this college reading things out of books when I should be learning from the world. I also, as part of rejecting my family back then, which I must say, I didn't last all that long because I, I realized how 
lucky I was to have a, a nice family and, and came to reconcile that we had political differences always, but uh, loved them deeply. But I realized I didn't want my family to pay for my education. And I thought, why should I even pay for my education when the world was an education? So um, these were the hippie days, Daryl. These were the days <laughs> when uh, you could do what I did, which was work as a waitress, make some money, and then take off. And I took off for almost four years, traveled all around the world, went through the easier places in Europe, but thought, oh, this is a little too uh, known for me. I want to go to the more unknown. I wanted to go where no Americans had ever gone, and I ended up crossing the desert in Africa by camel, and I was alone, and I just felt this amazing sense of a global citizen, uh, that borders weren't important, that nationality wasn't important, uh, that just being a citizen of the world was important. And I soaked it all in. I learned five languages. I lived in little villages. I loved going to a place that I didn't know and giving myself a couple of weeks to kind of figure it out uh, geographically, how it worked, the people, how they worked, try to learn the uh, something of the local language. And it was all like a big puzzle, and I, I thrived on it. But then I realized that I wasn't doing much for other people, and I wanted to do things for other people. So eventually I realized I wanted to go back to school, study nutrition, public health, become somebody who had a skill that could give to communities. Well, and you bring up that area of study. And when when people – well, even when I was describing you, I, I gravitate to – the co-founding of, of two very major organizations with, with, with substantial uh, histories and, 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 and effectiveness. But I skip over that other resume line because you, you spent time with the World Health Organization and the United Nations and other NGOs uh, as well. I worked for many years in Africa in some of the poorest communities in the world, and my life was very much affected by it because I saw that so much of the suffering was needless. And in one of the places where I was working, in fact, in many of the places in Africa where I was working, there would be uh, people dressed up as doctors and nurses who would come into the villages and convince the poor women that they shouldn't breastfeed their children, that they should give them powdered milk. And I was dealing with the results of that, which were children literally dying in my arms because the mother's milk dried up, because she mixed the formula with dirty water. And so I realized very early on that I can't just be putting the Band-Aids on these things. I have to uh, dig deep. And when I dug deep, I realized these were companies like Nestle's big uh, multinational corporations that were making money off of the poorest people in the world. And I thought, how could they possibly do that? Well, at that moment, I mean, you hear other stories, very similar stories, people who immerse themselves in, in, in situations like this, and, and they feel overwhelmed, they feel defeated, and they feel that they can't move forward, that I, they, that I can't make this fight. What motivated you to, to see the opposite, to see the potential in in having an impact going up with, against what most people would think. You, you can't fight them. Well, when you see wonderful, beautiful women having these beautiful babies and the babies are dying because 
some corporation is manipulating them, I felt I had to do something. Now, at that point, I was a young woman. I didn't know what to do. So I did what was obvious to me, which is go to the places where they were buying the milk and stand on the lines and tell them not to. So urging them one by one to make the right choices. But this was a much larger issue. So I started digging deeper, digging deeper. And so little did I know as I started uh, my own quest with a petition and going into the the city and trying to find the company headquarters and all of this, that there was actually an international campaign going on that I didn't know about. And what I ended up doing as a nutritionist, I discovered that there was a an international nutrition gathering every year. And I thought, well, I'll go there and I'll meet up with other people. Well, little did I know when I went to the gathering that there was a huge sign as we entered that said, Nestle's. Nestle's was the sponsor of this international nutrition gathering, which made me crazy. And instead of doing something sane, I did something very insane, which has marked a lot of my life, which is I went out and got some paint and found some people with a ladder. And I went up and I painted on top of the sign, Nestle's kills babies. And then I got arrested. So it was quite early on. I, was that I, your first arrest? That was my first arrest. And it was in Brazil under a dictatorship. So it wasn't too too much fun. In fact, it was quite scary. And I ended up having to uh, find somebody in the U.S. Embassy who had come and get me. And I was deported from Brazil. So that was a an early lesson in uh, how if you go up against a corporation, you're oftentimes going up against a lot more than one company. Well, I'm curious. The, the, that, that moment that you acted, did arrest ever cross your mind? No, I had absolutely no idea. In fact, I thought I was very stealthy. Uh, I did it at, at night, and I didn't get arrested at night. I got arrested the next day because it wasn't enough for me to just write that on a sign. I went out and, and Xeroxed a bunch of, of uh, pieces of paper and started giving them out. And I thought, well, this is, you know, nothing wrong with this. And as I was giving out a paper, all of a sudden my arms were pinned to, the, to my back and plainclothes policemen whisked me away. We're talking to Medea Benjamin here on WFIU Profiles, and Medea, we're, we're talking about that, that the time that you were working with NGOs and, and, and here in uh, their first arrest. At, at what point did you start transitioning from doing the work as an individual and start thinking about, I can form, I can work to build something bigger and, and, and lead to something uh, such as um, global exchange? Well, when you realize that this is not something you can do on your own, that you need a community to do this and also to protect you, because when you get arrested, you really do need a community out there that's going to yell and scream on your behalf. But more important than that, I think it's uh, larger movements that change history. And I realized that um, there were a lot of major issues that I wanted to deal with in my life. And I started working for another organization, a wonderful group called Institute for Food and Development Policy, also known as Food First. But there, our job was to write about the issues. And I loved writing, and I published a number of books. But every time I got into an issue, I wanted to do something. So I was like, you can't just write this book and then leave the issue. So then I realized I had to start my own organization that was devoted to not just researching 
but action. And that's uh, why we created Global Exchange. In, in that creation process, how many people were you pulling together initially in, in trying to, to launch, uh, launch Global Exchange? There were three of us. And we worked as three people on – lived off of unemployment for a year and just spent the time trying to figure out how do you build an organization, how do you build community, how do you fundraise for your efforts. But most important, we wanted to decide what are the issues that we're most passionate about and how are we going to work on them. Because we're still talking – this is 1988? Right. And so still the internet not proliferating. You didn't have the ease of communication. How did you build those bonds initially, I guess, throughout the United States and extending globally? Well, I can remember sitting in our offices when the days of bulk mail where we would have the the letters – all over the office and be trying to put them in an order so we could send them through the mail. We had phone trees. We did a lot of telephone calling. And we held a lot of meetings and invited people to come to meetings. We also did a lot of traveling. It was during the days of the anti-apartheid struggle, so we were working on South Africa. We reached out to the African-American community, to the religious community. We uh, also, as part of our uh, idea of how would we fund ourselves, we thought we would sell art and crafts from those countries. So we opened up a little store and we sold art from South Africa. We were also working on the issue of Haiti that had a lot of beautiful art. And um, that's how we began, which was actually a really great formula because uh, while we did ask people for donations, we thought, we don't want to be beggars. We want to be self-sustaining. And we ended up building a number of stores we uh, sold beautiful goods to people, and even through the stores, it was like a way to give people a chance to make their own living because we were supporting a lot of women's organizations, and the global exchange stores did quite well and allowed us to do some of the more political work with some of the profits. When you're looking at the, the political work that you started and with, with, with global exchange, is, is there any success moment that you said – We've arrived. We had fantastic campaigns that changed the lives of tens of thousands of people. For example, we started getting involved around the sweatshop issues. And I couldn't believe the successes that we were having, which was we did some protests outside of uh, stores. And suddenly, the store owners would be very concerned about where were they getting their goods from. And we'd go to the corporate headquarters, and we'd buy shares, and we'd go to the shareholder meetings. And uh, suddenly, we were dealing in very large issues with very large companies. We got multi-million dollar settlements from companies like The Gap or Abercrombie & Fitch or 27 different major companies to pay back pay to workers. We transformed the whole industry in the Marianas Islands, uh, islands off the uh, that are that are part of the United States, but workers were enticed to come there, saying they would get U.S. wages, which they didn't get. Uh, they were really indentured servants when they got there. And then we took on Nike, the big shoe company, and that was quite amazing. In launching that campaign, and we we talked about using language and, and framing your biography. I mean, you were reframing the way people looked at, at goods in stores. I mean, language really did impact the, the changing people, the way they looked at, at what they were purchasing. Well, you, you hit it on the head because the word sweatshops was just 
incredible, the power of that word. And people started really, I mean, they knew it from the history books, but when they realized the clothing they were buying today and looked at the label on it and said, oh, it was Indonesia or it was Vietnam or it was Bangladesh, and then could associate that with sweatshops, uh, that's powerful. And what we did when we took on Nike shoes, we would say, you know, these shoes are made in sweatshops. Well, Daryl, we were so successful that a couple of months after we started the campaign on Nike, and the campaign involved going to Indonesia, going to the factories, meeting workers, bringing them to the United States, having them tell their stories, that when Nike did a focus group of 14-year-old girls and said, what do you think of when you think of Nike? And the answer was cool shoes, sweatshops. Nike knew they had a problem. Mm-hmm. And that's when we had an opening them to talk to them about getting rid of toxics they were using in the factories, paying the workers a decent wage, paying for overtime, improving the living conditions, giving workers clean drinking water to drink uh, on the job, things like that, that really transform the lives of many people. And again, we're talking to Medea Benjamin. Uh, and uh, looking back at, at, at her work, our next segment, we'll be talking about Code Pink uh, and we'll talk about some of the issues of, of drones. But as we move into our, our musical uh, break, we've chosen, the or you chose, Sarah Thompson's Is It For Freedom as, as one of the musical choices. And I was wondering if you could explain why that song means so much to you. Well, I think when your listeners hear it, they'll understand how haunting it is. It's just a beautiful tune. Uh, she's got a beautiful voice. She's not as well-known as she should be. And uh, I heard her sing this song, and it just stuck in my soul because it really is about um, wanting to be really proud of your country. And when your country is doing things that make you feel just that you can't lift your head up high as you go around the world saying you're an, you're an American, you've got to dig deep to say, why is that? And what can you do? Rulers of the nations as you fuss and fight Over who owns this or that and who has the right To design, build, sell, and store, and fire All the bombs and guns to defend your holy empire There are children hungry, children sick and dying There are mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers crying they're only pawns in your play of power and corruption. Welcome back to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Daryl Neer, and our guest today is peace activist Medea Benjamin. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. We're recording today for a future broadcast. And for our listeners at home, they don't realize that today in this studio, as we said, it's March 19th, 2013, the 10-year anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. Uh, 
so much of your work has been around uh, the the invasion and the war. What is this ten year anniversary? What does it make you feel, and, and what does it mean to you? Uh, here we here we are ten years later. Well, if I think about it a lot, it makes me want to cry. I mean, it it it, it breaks my heart. I feel like our country has done so much damage to the Iraqi people, so much damage to our own soldiers who we sent over there uh, for nothing, so much damage to our economy. But it's really the Iraqi people that I, I grieve terribly for. We have left the country in such a disastrous state. And what pains me terribly is that most Americans don't know and perhaps don't care. You, I mean, you spent time in Iraq and, and you were part of Occupation Watch Center in Baghdad. Can you share with us some key stories that really defined for you um, and, and can characterize for our listeners what went wrong? Well, first, maybe I can tell some positive stories sure. about Iraqis because I don't think that uh, Americans hear that very much. And the first time I went to Iraq was before the U.S. invasion with a group of Code Pink women who I must say were extremely courageous to want to go because it was about the time that the U.S. was going to invade. And we said, we've got to see what this is all about. We want to meet with the weapons inspectors. And we flew into Amman. We rented a, a bus and we drove into across the desert and got to the first checkpoint. And I'm Jewish, I had said. Um, this was not... Uh, long after the journalist uh, Daniel Pearl had been killed in Pakistan and beheaded, I knew that in, the, in this part of the world there wasn't there was a, a lot of tension, and especially between Iraq and Israel. And so I was um, uh, quite nervous. And when I got to the checkpoint, the guard there took my passport and he looked at it and he said, "Benjamin, isn't that Jewish?" And my heart was just beating like, oh, my God, why did I come here? What am I doing here? Um, this is crazy. And uh, he disappeared. And everybody else got checked in. And there I was waiting and waiting and waiting. Well, about 20 minutes later, the guy came back. And he was like breathing really heavy. And he handed me this notebook. And he said, I ran home to get my notebook because I'm studying Hebrew. And I wondered if you could correct my grammar. And I was just floored and said, why in the world are you studying Hebrew? He said, when uh, Iraq went to war with Iran, I studied Farsi. And now that it looks like we might go to war with Israel, I'm studying Hebrew because we should learn to communicate with those we are taught are our enemies. This is the first person, Daryl, that I met when I got to the border of Iraq so you can imagine, like, it just blew my mind. Stereotypes, they said, okay, I'm going to just not have stereotypes about who are these Iraqis. And, you know, he was working for Saddam Hussein. I mean, he was working for the government. Well, we went into Iraq, and the next person I met was somebody who I had been told to look up. I looked her up. She was an Iraqi woman, and she was in, uh, she'd studied English. So her English was beautiful. And when... I said hello and said I was an American. She was all excited. And her first question to me was, 
And again, remember, this is under Saddam Hussein, educated under Saddam Hussein's universities, had never left the country. Her first question was, which of the American black women poets do you like the best? And she started telling me, oh, I really love Toni Morrison and this one, that one. And I was, again, like floored. This was an incredibly educated country and incredibly educated people. And I met doctors and engineers and women who were, you know, involved in all walks of life, who got their PhDs from what were considered the best universities in the Middle East that were in Baghdad at that time. So... I had a new appreciation for the Iraqi uh, people, understanding that, yes, Saddam Hussein was a dictator. Yes, people uh, wanted to be free of a dictatorship, but they didn't want the U.S. to come in and, quote, do it for them. Well, and you didn't come without criticism when you uh, went into Iraq. I mean, there was uh, people were critical of, of the fact that you were there, raising questions about why should you be talking to weapons inspectors saying that you would would be undermining any potential war effort? Um, as those criticisms kept rolling in, talk about how that impacted your resolve in, in, in moving forward and staying committed to the work that you're doing. We got bomb threats. We got death threats. We had to change offices. We were called traitors. I remember being invited to the Dr. Phil show. You know, Dr. Phil. Oh, I've, yeah, I've read a lot about the exchange that you, you had did. on Dr. Phil. Yeah, really. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing, because m- most people would not have done that homework. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it, it, you entered into an incredibly hostile environment on Dr. Phil. Huh. I mean, the, the, it was talking as I was, as I was reading. Uh, it was. It sounded like there was an audience that was geared for. They were looking for red meat. Well, I'm amazed you even know about that, but it was quite – it was uh, indicative of what it was like during that period where in that case I was told to come on a show and there would be people who were pro and people who were uh, against going to war and it was not that at all. It was uh, me and this other woman who was with me against not only Dr. Phil but the entire audience and all the people he brought on. And this was a time when they were saying that if you were against Against the U.S. invasion, you were pro-Saddam Hussein, you were a traitor, you were against the troops, you were helping to support the murder of U.S. troops. And it was a hard environment to work under, and it took many years for people to recognize that the invasion of Iraq was not the right thing. But I tell you, after all these years, uh, I, I doubt there'd be many people that would say, oh, those code pink women, they were right and we were wrong. In fact, one of the uh, terrible ironies about all of this is that the same people who were cheerleaders to get us into the war are in high positions today and that the uh, analysts who said this was going to be a cakewalk are still analyzing things today and saying things like um, – we should uh, join in a military attack of Iran. Well, and again, we're talking to Medea Benjamin here on WFIU Profiles. Medea, um, the, the Iraq war was, I mean, I, I remember vividly uh, at this point because we were traveling with my nephew uh, and we were in Colorado when the invasion took place and, it, and, and, the, and the war started to, to happen. And I remember that, that moment where we started hearing about smart warfare. And and it was. We saw the warfare taking place on the screen, um, which really sets up much of your work now around drone warfare. You're exactly right. That is so much the way that uh, it happened in, in my 
particular situation of watching this on television and seeing the um, the graphics and all of the uh, hoopla about these new weapons that we had, but you never saw what happened when they landed on the ground. You never saw who was killed. You never you were told these are precise and we have these laser guided missiles now. But I didn't believe anything my government was telling me at that point. I mean, I had just been to Afghanistan. I had been to Iraq. I had seen the casualties on the ground. I had heard the lies that got us into the war in Iraq. And I wasn't believing any of it. And at this point, we're talking about 2003, 2004. Were we talking about drones at this point? At I don't all? think the word drone was used a lot. We were using the drones, but it didn't come into the popular vernacular at that time. We were talking about smart bombs, smart weapons, laser-guided weapons. Uh, but the word drone, I think, took a, a while longer to start coming out. And the, what struck me, and, and you've, you've hi- you highlight this in your book, how rapidly the use of drones for military purposes has unfolded. And, and could you speak to that? I mean, that really, that evolution in warfare. Yeah, it went from about 50 drones in the arsenal of the Pentagon in, uh, in 2001 to maybe over 8,000 today. Now, we're talking about all kinds of drones, a lot of them small drones that soldiers can pack up in their backpacks and launch on the ground. But we're also talking about the incredible surge in the use of weaponized drones, these Predator and Reaper drones that were uh, used very uh, frequently in Afghanistan and continue to be used to this day in Afghanistan, uh, were used quite a lot in Iraq and then started spreading out beyond those two areas where the American people knew we were at war to places where the American people did not know we were involved in violent confrontations. Is there a point where uh, you, you can point to to say that this was when the United States government decided we were going to amplify the use of drones as as part of our military. Is- you know, I think under the Bush years, it was just another instrument, another weapon of war to be used. And under the Bush years, there were maybe 50 drone attacks in all that time. Now, there were attacks with lots of other uh, aircraft and lots of other kinds of weapons, but drones were not considered the uh, weapon of choice. It was really under the Obama administration that the drones became the weapon of choice. And the argument has been that the use of drones protects American military personnel. Uh, it's it, this, it's safe warfare for for the United States. Um, but you characterize it. This is this is unethical warfare. And that and can you talk a, a bit about? that perspective of of how you think about war in, in, in the use of drones? You know, there's so many different ways to talk about it, Daryl, which is why I ended up writing a book about it, because I have so many problems with drones on so many levels. I mean, one is just to think about this idea that you can wage war from the safety of an air-conditioned room with a joystick that's like a video game, and that the person who is involved in pressing the kill button uh, face no risk, no consequences, and no responsibility if he kills the wrong people. 
not his fault. Nobody is even being asked uh, about it. It makes war too easy. It makes killing too easy. That's on the, the level from this side. On the level from the side of the people who are experiencing the drones, uh, I have gone recently to Pakistan where our drones are being used so much. I was in Gaza recently where the Israelis are using drones. And you hear something similar from people, which is not only are these drones killing lots of innocent people, but they're terrorizing entire populations. And so – Imagine, Daryl, that there is this ominous buzzing in the sky and you look up and you see this uh, this plane that is hovering over your community day and night, day and night, and you never know if or when it's going to drop its missiles, who it's going to target, if you're going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, one young woman said to me, everybody thinks that drone is after them, that you have your own personal drone. And the buzzing is like in your head. She said it's like a bee in your head. And it drives you crazy because you can't think of where you're going to be safe. Certainly, you're not safe in your house because missiles drop on houses. Mm-hmm. You're not safe in your school. We've, we've bombed schools. You're not safe at a funeral, a wedding. A, a community gathering. So it really terrorizes entire populations. You have a story about the, a community gathering where, and, and I think it really highlights the the difficulties of, of a disconnected war where you have people sitting in a room who are trying to analyze a threat, but really unsure of, of what it is exactly they're looking for. Well, what you're referring to is the something called a signature strike, which is permission by gi- given by our government to the CIA. And let's remember the CIA is not even a military organization. It's a civilian organization. So why should it even have these lethal weapons? But they've been given the authority to not just kill individuals who are on a hit list, but to kill people on the basis of sp- suspicious activities. Uh, and so somebody from 8,000 miles away sitting at uh, Creech Air Force Base, let's say, is supposed to be judging what is suspicious activity in a country they've never been to, a culture they don't know, where people speak a language they don't speak. And so, yes, they have targeted community gatherings known as jirgas, where the community traditionally comes together to resolve local problems. Well, to people thousands of miles away, this looks like a gathering of uh, a bunch of no-good Taliban. And in several instances, and I talk about one of them in the book, um, it sent in the Hellfire missiles, killed 42 of the most uh, respected members of the community. And you can imagine the kind of hatred towards the United States that spread far and wide in the tribal areas of Pakistan after 42 community leaders are vaporized by drones by, quote, mistake. You talk about the, the, the hatred that is, is created. I mean, you've spent a lot of time in, in, in Pakistan and Afghanistan and you've been to Iraq. Now when you go back... Do you experience the hatred firsthand? Well, the hatred is there. And so people who don't know you, um, when they find out you're an American, I mean, you are vulnerable now just because there are a lot of people with weapons. Uh, There's a lot of anger and a lot of Westerners, including Americans, who get kidnapped, who get killed when people know who 
we are, because I go in groups, they, uh, if we get a chance to explain ourselves, there's an outpouring of support. But that is when you get a chance to explain yourself, which isn't all the time. Uh, Medea, you, before we went on the air, you were highlighting uh, that Indiana has a connection to some of the manufacturing of of drone weaponry, and, and talk about the if you could talk a little bit about the the companies that are involved with uh, with the manufacture of drones, um, it, it, because it's it's interesting. It really was a niche market of of manufacturing, and it's it became uh, uh, well, really an, an open checkbook for, for for many of the those companies. Well, what's interesting is there is a, a a lawyer in Indiana, Fran Quigley, who decided that he was going to do some Freedom of Information Act applications to find out what were Indiana connections, and what he found out was a whole host of connections that ranged from a company called Light Machines that contracts to with the Navy to build a mini drone. He found out that Rolls Royce in Indianapolis was making engines for the big Global Hawk. Um, he discovered that there was a battery maker uh, in Indiana that was making batteries for drones. He discovered the engineering faculty of Purdue was doing research on drones. He found all these connections, and I called him and I asked, wow, you know, isn't this strange that Indiana has all these connections to drones? And he laughed and he said, you do this in any state in the United States and you will find all the connections because he said what is obvious. One, it's a multi-billion dollar business. Two, the manufacturers purposely try to spread the, the manufacturing pieces of this around the country because then they get Congress people who have a stake in the program. They, there even is a drone caucus in Congress uh, that pushes for more drones to be sold domestically and overseas. And so, you know, he said, yes, Indiana has lots of connections and uh, so do probably the 49 other states. Recently, I would, Senator Rand Paul uh, did his filibuster in the Senate calling attention to U.S. policy with regards to drones. Uh, what is your reaction to Senator Paul's filibuster? Well, it's it's funny, Daryl, because on one level, I have much more in common with progressive left-leaning senators like uh, Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin or Al Franken or Sherrod Brown from Ohio or Elizabeth Warren. And yet here I see the only person that is standing up to this terrible drone program is a Tea Party favorite, Rand Paul. And I was just delighted to see him taking 13 hours to do a national dialogue on drones because nobody has done anything close to that before. And I went to the offices, his office, after to bring him chocolates and, and flowers and say thank you, but also went to the offices of all these other progressives and say, why isn't your voice out there? Why are you leaving it to not just Rand Paul, but other Tea Party senators like Ted Cruz or or Marco Rubio to stand up and say to President Obama, why, you kill, why have you killed Americans with drones? Could you use drones to kill Americans here in the United States? What about all the people who have been killed overseas without the, even being accused of anything or given the right to a trial? Um, so my question is, 
where are all the progressives that under the era of George Bush were yelling and screaming about torture, extraordinary rendition, Guantanamo, illegal, immoral invasion of Iraq? Where are they today when President Obama is doing horrible things? And I just want to make it clear because I think that this you're not just talking about elected officials when you make that last statement. You're, you're talking about people who are actively protesting the White House uh, on issues of civil liberties and human rights. And they really have, in many ways, it, it appears to have disappeared from the, this an active engagement of the administration. Yes, I think when Barack Obama came in, we had a huge peace movement that had built up over eight years of George Bush that was capable of getting hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets, and it just dissipated. And those same people said, okay, we're going to let Barack Obama uh, solve all these uh, our, our country's problems. And lo and behold, we have five years later now, lots of problems that haven't been solved, and some of them have actually been exacerbated. And we can't get the same kind of energy out there for protesting them than we could during the Bush years. Well, I, I'm curious as to what your interpretation of or the, for the viability of the peace movement at this time or protest movement in general, because given the proliferation of social media, uh, the 24-7 news cycle, it, it, it seems that there's so much noise that the what had been the availability to get a voice heard, it it gets lost. So combined with what we're talking about here, people who aren't getting out, combined with the noise, it seems like the the, the difficulty is exacerbated. Well, I would say it's turning around because uh, whether it's about drones or immigration right or climate issue, there are a lot more people that are starting to come out. I think they were dormant for a couple of years during the first administration of Obama, and now they're ready to uh, really put a lot more pressure on. So in the area that I work in, there are constant protests that are happening outside Air Force bases where the drones are being piloted. There are constant uh, protests that are now happening at the offices of Congress people, uh, outside the White House, the headquarters of the CIA. I'm on my way in early April to Southern California. We're going to have a series of protests at the headquarters of the manufacturers of General Atomics that make the Predator drones. Uh, I think we're building up a movement, and there's been so much opportunity to educate on this issue of drones in the last uh, six months, I would say, that the polls are changing swiftly. The administration is feeling embarrassed by this. Uh, they're having to really, uh, for the first time, try to explain uh, this covert program. And I think we're going to see a change in the program itself. So I'm optimistic about the power of um, pressure campaigns, of protests, of educating people. And the fact that we do have the social media helps us a lot that we can put something out on Facebook and Twitter and get immediate response uh, is something that is very positive. And we also have been able through that to link up with people in Yemen, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan. Uh, we can have Google chats with them. And it makes the world a lot smaller. I'm on my way next week to Tunisia, where we're meeting with people from all over 
the Arab world to talk about what happened to the Arab Spring and what can we do to turn it back on a course of uh, democratic grassroots movement and how we in the United States can be helpful. So so there is a, a big movement out there, Daryl. Yeah, we've got a couple minutes before we have to wrap up. And, and being part of a university community, uh, I see students and I hear students who talk about they want to be engaged. They, they want to make a difference. Um, but they, they feel like they're running up against the economic realities of, of trying to, you know, to, to get out and pay their, their student loans and to, to, to potentially raise a family. And, and they, they see that in conflict. What sort of message do you give to them? I encourage them to get involved in everything from the campaign to erase the student debt. There is no reason that students should graduate with the debt. You know, in a, in a country, uh, uh, poor countries that I lived in for years in Africa and, and Latin America, university education was free. If you got the grades to get yourself in school, um, the community was grateful to you. In fact, in, in many countries, you would be paid a stipend to go to school. In Iraq, you could get your Ph.D. for free. Um, so students should not be graduating in debt. And that's something that we need a big student movement like the movement in Quebec or the movement in Chile of the students uh, to emulate. So that's a great one to get involved in. The other thing is to recognize that while you're young is the only time you really have in life to experiment, to get out there, to use that sense of justice and fairness that I think we're, uh, we, we have as children and not let it go. And hold off on the family, the mortgage, the house, and all of that, uh, and use the years to uh, really do what's in your heart, whether it's how are we going to reverse the destruction of the climate that we're on so that there will be a, 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 a world for, for our future generations, to how are we going to stop the wars that our government is involved in, to things about working in the local community. Whatever it is, go with your passion when you're young. Otherwise, you'll never get a chance to do it. Medea, we have to wrap up. Uh, as we head out, you have another musical piece that you selected, and it's Michael Franti's Fire. And I'm curious if you could talk about the, the, the importance of, of that piece to you. Well, I love Michael Franti. I um, know him personally and really respect him. He's traveled around the world and gone from places like uh, to be with the Palestinians. He went to Iraq. He's a very beautiful person individually and wants to see a more beautiful world. So I take great inspiration in his songs. We've been speaking today with activist Medea Benjamin. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much, Daryl. I enjoyed it. And this is Daryl Near for WFIU's Profiles. Thanks for listening.
The program you just heard was recorded in March of 2013. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.